0: I'd like to introduce you to a man with a long bio, but I'm only going to tell you what we know him by best and what we respect him for most. Los Angeles City Council President Eric Garcetti. Please welcome him.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much and good evening. And I want to thank uh, Gregory and the entire Zocalo staff as well as Rand for hosting us and hosting this. And Zocalo has become... Exactly that, an incredible space, um, a town center for a a, a town that really has no center, Um, a space for us to find when we often do not find each other uh, in this town. And I want to thank you for inviting me again to be part of of another Zocalo panel. I also want to thank everybody who has taken time to come out here tonight as well to be a part of this discussion. Um, This is the most terrifying and most robust moment um, in recent history, Um, a moment in which we are... Uh, kind of poised for the promise of America, but also the peril of uh, the moment in our history. And so as we talk through how does a nation go through the formal process of changing its executive branch, uh, we hope it's also a discussion that can open up more widely to folks about what the, the issues that the country faces right now. What are our values? What do we stand for? And I want to thank the Center for American Progress, which is really, there's been so much publicity about the campaign that we ran in the Obama campaign, the mechanics of it, the money of it. Um, But people forget the foundation that did come from the ideas that fueled a change in America uh, that wasn't just about the execution on the ground, which ultimately changed um, where we are going as a country. But it was also the work that CAP has done, and um, their presence here, the only place outside of Washington, D.C. Um, on the capital of the West Coast here in Los Angeles has been very important to us, and we thank them for their work as well. Let me uh, introduce the panel. Just before that, just by a quick show of hands, is there anybody in here who has not yet submitted their resume to Change.gov? Just go ahead. and <laughs> Okay, good, okay. Just want to make sure. See, no hands went up. Um, I wanted to uh, introduce uh, our incredible panel that is here. Uh, folks that don't have to imagine what uh, is going on right now because they have lived it out. They have been a part of that critical transition um, of government. Uh, They have also uh, brought not just political experience, but policy experience and experience um, in the world of ideas and should be able to provide an extraordinary um, uh, bit of insight into how these things occur, but also their perspectives on what has already occurred in the short but very swift actions that have already been taken by... Uh, President-elect Obama's transition team. Uh, first to my left is Rudy De Leon, who is the Senior Vice President for National Security and International Policy at the Center for American Progress. His 25-year government career concluded in 2001 after his tenure as Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, where he was a member of the Deputies Committee of the National Security Council and the National Partnership Council. Uh, in earlier Pentagon assignments, he served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness and Undersecretary of the Air Force. Uh, He was nominated for these positions, obviously, by President Bill Clinton and worked in the transition uh, team uh, for President Clinton uh, in the defense area. He also uh, is a Pasadena-born native, uh, graduated from LMU, and loves the Dodgers and sees them on the East Coast whenever he can. So we love you for that, Rudy. Apologies to Los Angeles Angel fans um, of Anaheim. (laughs) Maria. Echeveste is a senior fellow uh, at the Center for American Progress, but is really an inspiration, um, among other things. She is the co founder of the Nueva Vista Group, a policy and legislative strategy and advocacy group working with nonprofit and corporate clients. Uh, but prior to founding the Nueva Vista Group, she served as an assistant to the president and deputy chief of staff for President Clinton from May 1998 to January 2001 and really shepherded some of the most important um, uh, uh, pieces of legislation in the Clinton administration, uh, domestic policy initiatives, education, civil rights, immigration, and bankruptcy reform. In her spare time, when she's not changing the world or lecturing at at Bolt uh, Law School, she likes to read science fiction, which is very (laughs) important as we uh, go to a green economy. Uh, John Emerson (laughs) is our last panelist, the president of the Capital Guardian Trust Company's Personal Investment Management Division. Uh, As he liked to say this morning, he manages maybe some of your 201Ks. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Prior to joining the Capitol organization, he worked as deputy assistant to President Clinton in the White House, but he was also the go-to person for California things. And uh, it's not formally in his bio, but at those critical moments post the civil unrest here, uh, after the earthquake, he was really somebody who not only helped shepherd White House response to uh, Los Angeles, but really represented us incredibly well and the state. Um, as Deputy Assistant to President Clinton in the White House, he served as the President's liaison to the nation's governors and was responsible for overseeing administration policies uh, impacting the state of California. He directed the Clinton-Gore campaign here in 1992, but before that, he was Chief Deputy and Chief of Staff at the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office. And what he—he's a chairman also of the Music uh, uh, Center Board. So if, uh, you have to hit up if—or is anybody not up to date with their subscriptions? Just real quick, because <laughs> he's coming after you. But uh, he uh, is also somebody who wishes, if he wasn't doing what he was doing, that he could have played baseball and been cheered on by Rudy De Leon. (laughs) (laughs) So with that, let's um, turn to some first impressions. Um, Let's start with the cliché that's out there, because clichés always have a a big grain of truth and is a big piece of of what people have been talking about. Um, Then-Senator Obama announced his uh, candidacy uh, in Springfield, uh, Illinois, on the steps there of the State House. Uh, he's a big fan of uh, President Lincoln, who he frequently cites as his inspiration. Um, the picks that he has made so far, and obviously most, most notably this week with elevating uh, Senator Clinton as uh, um, the Secretary of State designee, um, have been likened to Lincoln's own philosophy of a team of rivals. Uh, nearly every discussion we see that happening, and I'd be curious to hear what the panel thinks now if you think through the top four um, vote-getters, I believe, in, in uh Iowa, besides, sorry, the top four of the top five, obviously John Edwards has not been nominated for anything (laughs) yet, (laughs) Um, but you never know, Um, are now serving either as Vice President, or or have been proposed as Vice President, uh, uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of Commerce, we're hearing uh, very soon. What is your impression of that team he's putting together? Can this actually hold?
2: Rudy, you had some comments. Rudy! Yeah, yeah. No, we, we've done this before. So.
0: so let's start with the team of rivals, yes. you know, because the press loves sort of a soundbite, and the Doris Kern's book is really an excellent display of how Abraham Lincoln, they were his political rivals, but they were also among the most capable people in American government at that time. In fact, unlike today, in many cases, they thought themselves the intellectual superior to Lincoln. And the book is really the description of how he uses his rivals to hold the whole country together during the Civil War. Um, I had a different analogy on the national security team. This is a a group of extremely experienced people. Mm -hmm. Smart counts. Substance (laughs) counts. And after an eight-year period where (laughs) ideology was dominant, I think we're entering into a phase where Actually, knowing how to get things done is going to become very important, and I think that's the cornerstone of the national security team. Mm -hmm. And a lot of talk on Senator Clinton and uh, Bob Gates staying on at the Pentagon, but equally Janet Napolitano and the Department of Homeland Security. For some reason, LAX has always been an issue, and I think uh, you, you see it in a lot of the the mm-hmm. data that gets reported. Yep. They're fascinated with New York City and LAX. So the Homeland Security mission is going to be extremely important as mm-hmm. because we know that from the Thanksgiving Day headlines. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say they're a team of rivals, but they're certainly capable, experienced, and know how to get things done.
1: Mm.
2: I'd say after hearing that, I'm going to start flying out of Burbank. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: I always used to say... Uh, 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 that uh, before 9-11 um, the country really didn't know how scary it was. I did because I, um, like Rudy, would get the President's Daily Briefing Report, which is the CIA report of the previous 24 hours and what needs to be watched, what needs, what's on the horizon, and so it was really terrifying. And I remember the last day I got the briefing on January 19, 2001, and I... Uh, said to my briefer that uh, I was really glad I wasn't going to get them anymore, but I, knowing that they existed I really wanted to get them. But I really the the complexity of the world, the challenges and uh, the just tremendous uh, potential for harm, I think what you have in the national security team and I would say with the rest of the picks as well is um, the absolute um, self-assurance and confidence of the president-elect to be able to elicit from smart people their best ideas and opinions because you, you were the ultimate decider, to use an overused term but that was that really has, but you actually make the decisions as president and the fact that he's valuing people who who understand things, who analyze complex, nuanced issues and will listen to get all of that information and make the tough decisions because the president makes the tough decisions. All the easy ones get made by staff, right? Mm-hmm. So you are, to me it's a tremendous testament to the confidence in, in wanting to be sure he's surrounded by smart people because the job is too hard, it's really hard.
2: And I would say the same thing goes from my vantage point of, of where I spend my day job uh, for the economic team. And uh, you saw the market's reaction when the appointment of Timothy Geithner was, uh, was announced or leaked, actually. And, um, uh, you know, once again, there is a sense that, uh, that he wants to pull together uh, talented people who, on uh, the economic side who understand Wall Street, understand Main Street, understand how government works, and know how to get things done. And um, there's been some talk, we were talking about this earlier today, about, well, all these former Clinton people, well, give me a break. You know, if you want, if you want folks who've been there before and have an understanding of, uh, uh, of how to move the levers of government uh, to great effect, great positive effect, you need people who have a sense of, of what's happening. And one of the mistakes that our former boss uh, made, you know, God bless him, was in bringing in a lot of um, outsiders, particularly in the White House staff, who really had no experience with uh, manipulating the levers of power in Washington. And we paid a price for that and ultimately learned. So I I see, you know, when people voted for change, they voted for change from the last eight years. They didn't vote for change from people who knew what the heck they were doing. And um, so I think that's a good thing.
1: You know, it's, it's often said to candidates once they go from the poetry of campaigning to the prose of governing be careful and don't hire just a bunch of people that were from the campaign. Great people, there may be some people who have skills that transfer, but many of the skills from a campaign don't necessarily transfer to the governance um, sector. Do you feel that um, President elect Obama uh, has taken that to heart? Is he making those decisions um, in the right way, or will he inevitably, having been on the inside, have that pull towards either donors, towards uh, high ranking campaign officials and others that he will need to bring in or feel that he should.
2: Well, I think the campaign uh, staff finds itself more, not so much in cabinet positions, uh, but it's not like, well, I ran Iowa so I should be Secretary <laughs> of Treasury.
1: Uh, you know, no, if you but, ran but, Iowa, it's Secretary of Agriculture. You know, that, <laughs> then
2: you're talking. Uh, or in this case, uh, Chief of Staff to the First Lady. But but that's my point, is you'll find the campaign staff who have built this personal relationship with the President and the First Lady and their closest friends and confidant over an intense two-year period of time. You'll find them populating the White House. You'll find them as Chiefs of Staff or h- Director of Communications to key Cabinet members and those kinds of things. So that's, that's pretty much where mm-hmm. where that plays in. So I don't think we've seen that... Um, play out as much, but we certainly will in the you know appointment of you know David Axelrod as a, a, to a key White House position. Uh, I, I think you'll begin to see more and more of that. But Maria, what are your thoughts? No, on I,
3: that? I absolutely agree that the uh, you'll find. I mean, the guy, he has to staff up 3,000, 4,000. I mean, your question about whether anybody here had not filed an application—they've got over 150,000. Resumes. Some for calculations
1: about, say a quarter million now. Uh, I mean, wow. it's
3: just it's it's. That uh, was just
1: from this morning to today.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was true. <laughs> that was
3: uh, that's a huge job, hugely important, and we both have that experience of trying to help the president staff those jobs. And so, you are going to find people who've been tried and tested, um, who know how to get things done, and um, given responsibility, and then they'll prove themselves. I mean, one of the great things. About um, a democratic administration, I believe, I'm being <laughs> biased here, is that you do get a chance to build the pipeline for the future leadership of the country in ways that give young people, young professionals, 30 something, 40 somethings, a real, these are big management jobs, they're complex issues, and this great training for future governors, for future senators, for future CEOs future presidents of universities. It's, it's, it's a wonderful um, an opportunity when you're looking for competence and, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. capacity and not just ideology, which right. is a, in stark contrast to the last eight right. years.
2: You, you know, when you talk about training, I just want to interject here, but um, I don't think there's anybody, certainly in California, who has mentored more people and trained more people than someone who's sitting towards the back there. And that's the former chairman of the Democratic National Committee and ambassador to, for Bill Clinton, Chuck Manat So Chuck, That's I just true. want to acknowledge your presence.
0: Yeah, but the transition from politics to governing mm-hmm. is a different one. And, you know, Treasury Department in the current administration has sort of had a revolving door. Um, and not necessarily folks that had their tune on the global economy in the current current marketplaces. So there's clearly a role for, for politics, but there's also a critical role for managing. Mm-hmm. And you know knowing what the initiatives are, making policy ideas actionable. That's sort of the nexus between substance and politics. Because you've got to have the votes in Congress, but you also have to have the right ideas. So it's a, it's a mixture of, of people mm-hmm. and knowledge of processes becomes extremely important.
1: So, so let me ask the three of you this, because you've said mostly complimentary things so far, and it's certainly been a honeymoon of the transition period. Who's missing so far? Who is not you know, not a specific person, necessarily, but in terms of the types of folks, the geographical <laughs> breakout, the ethnic breakout, the other things, who's missing so far in what you see publicly announced? Californians. <laughs> <laughs> not to be parochial but in
2: please we, we were okay. lucky in the first uh Clinton administration there were four Californians in the cabinet uh you know pretty amazing secretary of state uh, trade rep uh, uh council of economic advisors chair now we do have a, someone from Berkeley in that role You're but not, she's not are. really a Californian i mean kind of came out here and lived there for a while and um, and leon panetta as uh, as the director of the office of management and budget and um, I do think that it is important, it is equally important to have people who are, know what they're doing and have been there before uh, to bring people with different perspectives, uh, but who also share the President's vision and will implement the President's vision from uh, other parts of the country, rather than folks who have just been banging around Washington. So I, I would say, maybe being a little bit parochial, but um, I, and there's an announcement that may be made in the next couple of days uh, of a, a Californian to a prominent position, but that has been sort of lacking at this point.
1: I've read that. That's public. That um, oh, okay. potentially that was in, on a couple of the blogs just before coming here that potentially r- represented Javier Becerra. Yeah, it's been <laughs> on a blog. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, uh, and on Politico that Javier Becerra may uh, have been offered the trade rep position here from Los Angeles.
3: Uh, which has a huge, rep, you know, uh, impact in terms of trade policy Fantastic. and all of the um, concerns that people are feeling about um, jobs, etc. Um, but I, I, you know, you asked the question. I think one that kind of stood out is sort of is, for example, at labor. You know, sort of who should be secretary of labor at a time when um, people are very concerned about unemployment. And I actually think that the reason trying to find that right person, is um, typically people sort of think, well, that's organized labor, right? Well, organized labor represents, in the private sector, less than 10%, right? And it's it's a split, as some of you know. And so that doesn't quite make sense. On the other hand, um, Given what we're facing, potentially double-digit unemployment, I mean, it's, it's pretty ugly out there, as we, we all feel. Part- California's already at 8.2%. Um, uni- finding someone who's going to be thinking new about the new economy, the new knowledge-based economy, at a time in which uh, we're not going to have the resources, we're going to have to make hard decisions about the kind of investments in education and and training, uh, this
1: are, it's a, it's a hard it's, it's a
3: hard trying to figure out who the right person is who can combine what's needed so you can be a strong voice at that national economic table, uh, arguing with Treasury and Office of Management and Budget. So I I'm I'm not surprised, but it, it but it's kind of concerned. Mm-hmm. That would be the one just that stands out.
0: And so I'd put energy in that camp mm-hmm. because energy is a national security issue. It's an economic issue. It's a trade issue in terms of the amount of capital that's leaving the country right now. Um, and then it's an environmental issue. How can we get to the next generation of technology and to use green both to reinvigorate the economy but also to take us to essentially a post internal combustion engine sort of environment? And so, um, I I would say that's one of the the missing pieces. There's not, you know, in Washington right now, (laughs) we have two kinds of stories. We have rumors and we have leaks. (laughs) (laughs) Now, and it's a critical (laughs) distinction. The leaks are sort of coming as trial balloons. So that, you know, if there's anything bad to say about somebody, you get it out there during the leak phase the rumors are coming from people who are sort of would-be candidates for this or that. <laughs> and so the reporter will call and say, well, do you know who's in consideration? And you'll say, well, no, I haven't seen a list. And you say, well, would you like to be on the list? I'll write that in the story. And so, you know, you, know, you say, no. So we've got these, these, these rumors and leaks and just about everything has generated a rumor except the energy job. Mm-hmm. And oh, so it'll, it'll be interesting because Energy is as complicated as the Absolutely. econ in terms of where we need to go next. Why as do you a think country? that
2: is? That it hasn't? I mean, as you describe it, it's uh, crucial.
0: Because I think it's complicated, and I think the president elect Obama and the team know this is an issue. You've got to think about it differently.
2: Right. And they haven't been able to convince Al Gore to take it. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly.
3: <laughs> but think about the energy yeah. job because it really. Your usual sort of usual Washington way would be yep. to think of someone who comes from an energy-producing state or yep. someone from an industry, one or Sarah the other. Well, yep. yeah. huge, huge <laughs> problems, Bad huge idea.
4: problems, Female right?
3: Rivals, you
0: know? Do you, so it's yeah. Well, and it's tough because you know, in terms of the politics of energy, you're going to have to forge a new pat, path forward. We're sort of in two camps. Yep. One camp. Um, I was going to say is sort of reflective of the incumbent vice president, but I won't say that, um, is sort of the deregulate, did, deregulate yeah. everything. And <laughs> the let drill the mar- baby drill. Yeah, there. exactly. Deregulate, the drill team. Deregulate everything <laughs> and let the market just establish the price. And so that's how you get gasoline of $5 a gallon on Wilshire Boulevard, which in my own uninformed poll is the highest I've ever seen it in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so on one hand, they sort of deregulate everything and let market pr- price decide. And then on the other side is sort of the doctor no world, where you know we know what we're for and we're what we're mm-hmm. against, and we're going to have to rethink a lot of a lot of issues mm-hmm. um, and um, how we what we invest in, um, where our sources are coming from. But thinking fresh, and so it's going to require a coalition putting together good ideas because there are enough votes on either side. You know, when the left and the right get together, it's usually not a good outcome. Mm-hmm. So. Energy is going to require a new consensus in the country. And so that may be why it's, it's, right, it's right, moving slower.
1: Right. You've all worked with some of the principal actors who are now on the, the main stage. John Podesta, who's been heading up much of the pre-transition work and, and much of the transition work. Um, Rahm Emanuel now, who's been named as Chief of Staff. Um, walk us through a little bit of, of the personalities and how you think some of this stuff plays out. What stuff is brought up to the President, and who are the decision-makers at this juncture Um, in, you know, how these things are getting done. And some of this, you know, unless you're in that room, you can't know 100%. But I think a lot of the people here, that's the great curiosity people have. How do these decisions actually get made? You know, even if you want to refer back to something that happened in the Clinton administration, uh, tell us some of of those stories or those conjectures you might have uh, with those personalities in mind.
2: Well, Maria, I think you were probably more in the middle of that in your deputy Mm -hmm. chief of staff role. Than anybody,
1: right? Um, she we, was
2: Josh, by the way, for the if West Wing. <laughs> Remember West Wing?
3: He had my job. We did, we just didn't make decisions walking down hallways, right. but um,
2: but we were really right. clever in our repartee. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: I think the first thing I would say is it it really is that um, these what you have are really really smart people trying to do a superhuman job. You know, trying to staff the president, who has an awesome responsibility. So you very quickly, yes, there are egos and whatnot, but what you find is people are just trying really hard to do the very best job that they can, um, to sift through lots of information, to try to have a proactive agenda when you don't know what's walking in the door when you get to work in the morning, that you know there's uh, 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 Los Alamos fires. There's been an earthquake mm-hmm. at Northridge, and things happen, and you've got to quickly. I mean, that's for me the h- hardest thing about watching Katrina because I had managed disasters, um, foreign and, mm-hmm. and domestic, and just the coordination. And Chris Redley, my husband, had been at Office of Management and Budget, and had given all this money to FEMA, had really built up FEMA, and watching what was not happening. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just, I was, we were crying. And so it's, you really hard jobs, mm-hmm. they're, you know, really smart, capable people just trying to do, you're, you're not just, you know, ball, they're eggs. Mm-hmm. And if an egg, a raw egg, and if it falls, it is a mess. So you're really walking around with a lot of stress. <laughs> <laughs> and so what you, what you find is <coughs> the best White House, I think, and the best White House staff, is where you really have processes to ensure that the differing opinions and the differing perspectives have been winnowed out and, and, and uh, crystallized so that if there is an easy answer, you found it and can report to the president and make sure that he agrees with you. And if there's not an easy answer, that you've teed up the issue in as clear and precise a way, so that the president can de- mm-hmm. can make the hard decision.
2: I think one of the more one of the most interesting processes in terms of decision making is the State of the Union process. Oh, mm-hmm.
3: I ran two of them.
2: And so, yeah. it, well, why don't you talk about that? Because I mean, I think that's yeah. I think that's fascinating. And it's the competition for, you know, from the different agencies and departments to get their. Pet projects in that thing, but, but go the ahead and State talk of the
3: Union that. really acts as the strategic plan mm-hmm. for the president's administration. The things you're going to focus on, the the where you want to put your expend your political capital, and so of course all the departments and every outside interest mm-hmm. group wa- wants to uh, weigh in and wants a sentence, a paragraph, <laughs> a word, um, and so that process. But it's also dictated by the budget process. Right, because you you know you can't say something in the State of the Union in which two weeks later, when you um, present the the president's budget, you haven't allocated money for. It. So it's uh, it is competitive. It's less less uh, disciplined than normal decision making mm-hmm. uh, because it really this is a time when good ideas are sought out.
0: Yeah. Right. You know, John's right. There's not a Hollywood movie about. Life in Washington, where the key decisions aren't made walking down the hall. (laughs) I used to refer to someone who would approach me in the Pentagon Hall. That was called a tackle. If I was walking from meeting A to meeting B, and somebody would approach like that, it was called a tackle, and tackles were prohibited. Because (laughs) the worst thing you want to do is make an important decision when you're distracted. I think the second thing is you know they they talk about the difference between uh, i'm going to use my first sports analogy, and as you study history, all of the analogies in politics sort of prior to the t v era were either Shakespearean or biblical because that's those that those were the points of reference, and now <laughs> they're all sports related <laughs> um, and so it's um it's basically um what they say is, the difference in professional football from the college game to the pro game is speed. Players are big, but it's the, it's the speed with which things are executed. And so, in this world of Deputy Chief of Staff Maria, when she wants the Deputy Secretary of Defense over in the West Wing, you're over there very quickly. But it is processing <laughs> issues, you know, we like to do things sequentially. I'm going to do A, then I'm going to do B, then I'm going to do C, then I'm going to go back to A. And what you're really doing is you learn how to process things simultaneously. Multiple things simultaneously, meaning that you've got five of your most capable people working the issues, feeding the data in because it can change from the forest service started a back there was a brush fire in New Mexico. Yeah. The Forest Service started a backfire to try to put it out, and we were on the verge of burning down the Los Alamos nuclear laboratory. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so, you, you, but you, so you've got to have capable people mm-hmm. that are able to implement simultaneously on, on multiple fronts. That's particularly true for the DOD, where you've got to hear, you've got to get the incoming bad things so that you can take corrective action. You can't wait until you don 't want bad things to happen to your troops, and you want to take the action, so it's the speed mm-hmm. um, and then the multiple things as as one colleague said, if you can't ride two horses at the same time, you don't belong in the no, that's in a the great, process no, that's
2: a great metaphor you know Eric, one other thing on the decision making uh, aspect, not all decisions get to the president in fact, and you know, Maria was saying, easy decisions are made by staff. you know most decisions don 't get to the president, which is why. It's so important to have the right people in these positions throughout the government. But, you know, I always give as, a, as an analogy, if you want to get something done uh, in the White House or in, at a senior level in the administration, it's an interesting idea. Um, as often as not, there's not someone who can green light that for you, but it's really about figuring out, you know, on any given issue, there's 16 people who can kill it. And so you try to figure out in advance, who are the 16 people that might have an issue in this that might kill it? Some might be on Capitol Hill, some might be in the administration, some might be mm-hmm. in the White House. And you do your work, and you get around to those 16 people, and maybe you modify the direction that you're going a little bit uh, to deal with some possibly good comments that have been raised. And then you can go ahead, you can go forward and, uh, and implement. Uh, and so there's a lot of decision-making that gets done almost a negative reverse type of uh, uh, decision-making, but with good, capable people as the as the drivers uh, as well.
1: We have a few minutes before we go to uh, some questions from the audience. Um, people often say that uh, individuals campaign the way they're going to govern. And certainly, um, working on the Obama campaign, when folks would say he's untested, doesn't have executive experience, I would point out moments of execution in this campaign when Senator Obama himself, um, you know, led the campaign, um, whether it was a staffer in Iowa before the caucuses beginning to say some anti-Hillary things, which he said, we're not going to win that way, and really brought his senior advisors together, Uh, whether it was in the low moments, whether it was the, the strategy he charted out. But one thing that is not paid as much attention to is how instructive do you think the way that people transition reflects how they will be as president? And what lessons have you seen thus far about the sort of transition that Barack Obama has led, that give you clues about how he will govern as our 44th president.
0: So I'll start. I think that there is a coolness of temperament which is very important. He doesn't panic. Um, a cu- couple of illustrations: when um, there was criticism about whether we should negotiate with Iran, um, you know, a lot of. Politicos will look for the comfort zone. Where can, where can I go on the one hand, on the other hand? And, you know, his quote is, you know, FDR met with uh, Stalin. Nixon met with Mao. Um, Kennedy and Eisenhower dealt with Khrushchev. So we can have a dialogue with, with Iran. So he didn't, didn't back off there. And I think doing the two conventions back-to-back Usually you get a bounce, and if you're good, you know, Bill Clinton got a bounce in 92, and he rode it all the way to the election Mm -hmm. day, and those buses, Mm -hmm. um, you know, were, were, was very important, but with the two conventions back to back, there really wasn't a, a bounce for the first convention to occur, and so the Republicans, you know, they were in the full attack mode, and, you know, um, sort of the limitations of the VP candidate on the Republican side were not yet apparent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it was the attack continuously, and, um, you know, folks were saying, oh, when are you going to punch back? And, you know, he didn't, because that's not a core conviction of 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 his. And held his ground, and, you know, stayed on the path that, that was, was his. So I think it reflects temperament, as well as intelligence. And those are pretty important traits.
1: Very important. I would
2: say, uh, watching the transition, uh, preparation. The fact that he had asked John Podesta, you know, who's, who's you know, founder of CAP, Center for American Progress, to, to begin months ago, setting up the state, you know, just basically setting up the structure for, uh, uh, for the transition. But, you know, preparation, thorough deliberation um and uh discipline in terms of the you know the the leaks not getting i mean smart leaks at the right time uh but a very very disciplined uh transition operation and decisiveness uh you know he he's appointed uh, yeah, I mean w- when you compare where Bill Clinton was at this stage, I mean Bill Clinton right now is just beginning to start roll out appointments, and you know here we already have the economic team, the for the national security team, and, and some of the senior White House people um, so decisiveness I think those are all qualities that you want to see in a president that uh, I, I would I would hope are reflective of his governing style
3: and I guess I would. Actually, go back to the campaign uh, for a moment because I think you're starting to see it in the transition as well. In which is, um, the campaign was really run uh, in a different way that uh, paid less attention to the usual constituency politics, um, and much to a lot of frustration of folks used to certain ways of doing things. And um, what that, and it, and it was a ground operation. Um, that really allows him to be able to say as president-elect and ultimately as president that he's been elected by a broad group of people. That no one group is solely responsible for his election. That's incredibly liberating. Mm -hmm. And I think creates some political space. I will say that I think having harnessed that energy part of what the challenge will be is how to keep that engagement of the public to be able to keep replenishing the political capital that you need to get things done in Washington. If you're really, I mean, it's gotten so partisan, so, um, we have tough problems. And the fact that there's been such obstacles only way you're gonna break that is is harnessing the public's desire for movement on an issue so how he taps into it is it's it's it's, I, it's hard. I don't have the easy people have been thinking about it. But I really think it it's um it's a lesson that we should look at carefully because it reflects who we are as a country. We are multiracial, multi-ethnic, genders, age and we're all part of giving a president a very, you know, 53% doesn't seem like a lot, but for modern, mm-hmm. the last 28 years, mm-hmm. that reflects a real victory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Now is your chance to ask much more incisive and intelligent questions than I did. <laughs> um, so we have some microphones okay. on both sides, I guess. Good
4: evening, folks. Um, we will now begin, in fact, with our Q&A sure. portion of our uh, discussion tonight. And we want to let you know this is being recorded for podcasts. podcast. So all questions must be asked into the microphone. Ooh, Just raise your, your hand president. and wait for Sokolos <laughs> staff to, to get to you. There's two of us going around, one on each side. And our, also at this time, our donation bugs will be going around. So we do appreciate any The more you donate, support. the longer your question can be. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hi, my name is Todd Kerner. and Maria, you had mentioned constituency politics, and I seem to recall Obama um, endorsing ethanol in Iowa and saying that he believed that marriage was between a man and a woman, which I took as constituency politics. What has he said during the campaign that I can take comfort that he's going to perhaps relax on now that he's governing, or when he starts to govern?
3: Um, I, on, on energy, on, on. Um, I don't know if it's constituency politics. Um, the ethanol. I mean, that's why I'm. I mean, this is why I'm never going to run for president. That's why I think Iowa should not be first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 yep. um, and I think that. There is going to be, for example, on the ethanol question and the use of corn and all the implications that has for the planet 's food supply, et cetera, there are going to be some, I believe very heated discussions um, that I are going to test what the president what he said as a uh, campaigning and what and actually, what he has said on the question is. We want to get to that place in which we have renewable, cleaner energy, but we, need a, we, we can't get there immediately, so what are the intermediate steps? And ethanol is mm-hmm. one of those ways to get us there, but it isn't ultimately the best... Right. Imp- it's imp- not a
0: strategy. It's, not, it's a strategy.
3: not a strategy. It's a tactic to get us to a certain place. So I think you will, you will find that on a number of different issues.
2: I think uh, as to the general issue of constituency <laughs> politics, and obviously, a lot of promises and pledges get made in campaigns. I think one of the lessons learned from Bill Clinton in the first two years was Clinton tried to do too much too fast on too many fronts. And I think that uh, uh, that Barack, just from watching how he's handled the transition, understands that a president uh, at the outset can do two or three really big things. And guess what? He's got two or three really big <laughs> things on his plate. And so he is going to focus on those and we can get to the rest later on. But I, I think that um, uh, you can just see with the way he's been rolling this out and his discipline and not engaging mm-hmm. uh, in other issues when they get asked in press conferences and things like that, uh, that, uh, that he's going to be focused and, and I think Bill Clinton would have been a lot better off at the outset if he just said, hey look, I'm going to focus like a laser beam on the economy, that's why I was elected. And, uh, and and I think he got uh, sort of tripped up in, in just trying to do so many things on so many fronts simultaneously. So it, it goes mm-hmm. back to discipline.
4: A question in the center here. Thank uh, you. My question uh, involves a name that hasn't come up y- yet. It's Eric Holder. And you were all around, I suppose, when uh, Bill Clinton pardoned Mark Rich and uh, some other controversial. <laughs> Uh, some of us had left the White House okay. by then. <laughs> uh, I guess my question is, how do you figure Barack's decision to choose Holder when there are so many capable uh, attorney generals? Eric has a fine record, but he's got this huge blotch, which some sources say resulted from his desire to be attorney general under Al Gore, and Jack Quinn was was working with him to get around the, attor- the SDNY office, and other people in the White House that had jurisdiction. Why could not a different selection have been made? Uh, some people say it's black. I'm sure there were huge amounts of qualified black attorney generals. How do you – I, I, I imagine there's going to be a huge fight at the Judiciary Committee to bring up all the nasty stuff that came up and the papers are digging up these days. Oh, go ahead. I'll take go that. Alright, go ahead. Um, I'll take it, too. <laughs> right, I national secu- so, I'm happy to um, take that.
0: Those questions will, I, will be asked in the Senate confirmation process, guaranteed. One of the key things of the Attorney General is on the national security side. Um, the FISA's, the wiretaps, you know, we face a challenge on the Homeland Security Mission. And it's, how do we keep the country safe? the Declaration of Independence, the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. The clerk or the secretary who has a job at the World Trade Center has every right to be protected by the government when she reports that that business location is not going to be a terrorist attack. On the other hand, the Bill of Rights are fundamentally part of the country. And Eric Holder's knowledge of the national security side, from his tenure as Deputy Secretary, understanding how the national security wiretaps work. There have been change, the Patriot Act, it is to protect the country and to maintain our Bill of Rights. And it's working with the Director of National Intelligence. So he has that unique set of experiences. And so, you know, if any of us were perfect, we'd be in another line of work. So I think you have to measure the person's total, total qualifications and also the particular skill sets he has on that nexus between the enforcement of the law, the protection of national security, and our liberties as Americans.
3: I would just say, uh, because I was deputy chief of staff then, but I, my son was born on December 24, 2000, and I always thank him... Because it avoided my being involved in any <laughs> of the meetings involving the pardons and not being asked to come. I know from ta- from folks that this was President Clinton's decision, and there were people exactly who went right. home Friday nights exactly right. believing that they had persuaded whatever this w- and then
2: including Bruce Lindsay and John Podesta. Exactly. Both and so
3: I would just simply say that it. It's perceived as a blot on Eric Holder. Um, I think the story is much more complicated than that, and uh, I think he is a terrific choice as Attorney General. The Republicans will have fun asking some of these questions, but I don't think, ultimately, it will carry much.
2: Yeah, I I don't think it's going to be a nasty hearing. I think they'll have fun with the questions. I think he'll be well-briefed in terms of how to handle it. He'll have his response. But there's one other aspect of this, which is, uh, Barack Obama probably worked as closely with Eric Holder as anyone on the most important decision he had to make as a candidate and that was the selection of the vice president. And when you have the opportunity to work closely with someone and develop as he obviously did or he wouldn't have been making this appointment, that kind of trust and confidence in someone's judgment and and their approach to decision-making uh, and their values and, and all of that, you know, you are going to give them a break. And, 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 you know, John Podesta, I think, was quoted as saying if, if, uh, if we had to eliminate everybody who made one mistake in their public lives, there wouldn't be very many people that we could put in these jobs. And, and I'll say something else. You need to have, I, th- I think one of the errors, another error Bill Clinton made was appointing an attorney general who he basically never met. And um, you need to have, as attorney general, when, when uh, push comes to shove, that's probably the one person you can't pick up the phone and talk to a president in, in a lot of the uh, the negative stuff that swirls around Washington the investigatory you know uh, atmosphere that sometimes develops you need someone that you trust implicitly uh, to um, uh, exercise good judgment and and to have integrity have a sense of prosecutorial discretion and I think Barack had a chance to observe that uh, with Eric Holder firsthand, and that's probably l- uh, another reason that led to his appointment. You
4: have a question to your right
2: Hi, my name is Howard Sherwood. Uh, With all the brilliant people that are in the, that will be in the cabinet and so forth, how is the fine line determined when you make a decision in your position and when you elevate it to the president for his decision?
3: How do you know the really tough decisions? Well, certainly there are issues that involved, um, for example, an office of management and budget you're dealing with billions of dollars. You as a program um, associate director, you're in charge of, you're like two levels below, but you're in charge of four agencies or so. You don't actually, any decision less than $100 million, you usually don't, someone else is making that, right? So you have processes in place to, to uh, winnow out the, the big decisions, right? Um, there are, uh, let's see, you could have racial profiling in the death penalty. If you know the president uh, has been concerned about that issue you're going to want to make sure that that you prepare the decision memo in such a way that if he wants to be further involved, so it's a combination of knowing what he's interested in, that he's, he cares about something, but also the, the big ticket items, the, the ones that are going to have huge political costs, you want to make sure the president is aware of those costs. And if there's unanimity about a particular course of action, you've got to make mm-hmm. sure the president's okay, that you all may think this is the right thing to do, but there's going to be this hell to pay. Um, if mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, Rudy, what yep. did you say? You, uh,
0: uh, on the national security questions, you, th- there's only one commander-in-chief. And those decisions go up, up the chain. It's important to hear all of the views and to make sure that everyone has a chance to not only say what they're for, but what they have reservations about. But I think it's a very very clear, clear process. The use of force, anything involving our troops. Um, the military is a unique organization. It has this marvelous thing called a chain of command. And um, so those, those are automatic. And also, I think, tough budget issues, the trade-offs, only the president can make those. And I think what we're, we're seeing in the Cold War, it was clear there were two points of view in the world. And now, almost 20 years after the Berlin Wall came down, we're in the center of globalization. And so issues are no longer in one box or another, the energy issue, um, the trade issues, um, are all interconnected, and so only the president can really uh, be the the decision maker there.
2: But in terms of the when do you raise it up? none of these decisions happen in a vacuum. I mean, people are, there's a whole deputies process where uh, deputies in the economic cluster, the national security cluster, or the domestic policy cluster are talking. They're working with the White House. The White House staff is integrated with it. And, and it's, um, you know, it's when in doubt, check. And, uh, and the folks you're checking with are typically senior people in the White House who uh, can make these kinds of judgments and are, have a pretty good feel for what he's going to want to, you know, be in on.
3: I'll give you a good example of, of where uh, there had been this whole issue of uh, pardoning Puerto Rican prisoners who had been involved in attack in Congress and um, this is an issue and been pressed and pressed and our White House counsel, Chuck Ruff, who um, died during the Clinton years, looked at, was looking at the issue and so it was, you know, there was a lot of political pressure for one side and but Chuck, you know, tremendous, impeccable, ran the system, made a recommendation. Um, John, I was working with John Podesta, president, right, August. There was the one time I felt that John, both of us, this firestorm that broke out after, over that. We just, we, we, our political antenna, Hillary was running for Senate. And the whole story was oh. the pardons are to help with the Puerto Rican vote in New York. So that was like, I, they always think of that as one place where we failed the president because we hadn't, at least we could have been, you know, heads up, we're going to get killed on this. But so it,
0: mm-hmm.
3: you're, as I said, your eggs, yep. sometimes one falls. Well, and
0: we also have this wonderful process called the Sunday talk shows. Oh, and, yeah. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> great. They will find the controversy in any issue and magnify it. So by the time, Meet the, uh. And the gamut is from meet the press to Fox. So by the time, you, you know, um, you learn when to not watch those shows anymore. Because if you're managing a, a critical issue, you want to have your antenna for what you know, your military is telling you and not get wrapped up in the Sunday talk shows. But it's very rare for a controversial issue to sort of miss the president. I have
4: a question in front here.
0: Hi. Um, For obvious reasons, there's been talk of shortening the transition period. And I'd like to ask, is it realistic to shorten it? And if so, how short can it realistically, pragmatically be?
2: You mean this time or in general? In general. You know, this is a shortened transition period. When FDR was sworn in and, you know, it was March or the end of March or something, (laughs) I I can't imagine... I can't imagine, these guys are running 150 miles an hour, and I think government gets more complex and the issues get more complex. I, I don't know how they do it in the, in the British system, where they, you know, two days later the guy moves into 10 Downing.
3: Well, they do have fewer political jobs, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. Yeah, um, you know, mm-hmm. it's really...
2: Well, the,
0: the parliamentarians are actually, run the department. So yeah, I so guess
2: that's right, yeah, so that, yeah, that yeah, that's so makes that's, it a little yeah, different. smaller pool
0: you pick from. Yeah. I right. think it's about right.
2: Right yeah, I now, feel it's about right uh, too,
3: especially given the kind of preparation that went on. This, I mean, we did. Learn, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm proud to say, Democrats learned their lessons.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and also we have, have this wonderful document on the Center for American Progress website called the the um, the blue change change for, for America. <laughs> we kept we called it the Progressive Blueprint, but Change for America, and it's been in the works for more than a year and it's, you can go to the website and you can find it. And um, just like there's an excellent report on China, the Council on Foreign Relations said that the CAP report on China, um, written by Nina Hajiki, and where's Nina? She's here somewhere, <laughs> you know, is, is the best report out there on China today. But there's been, you know, because there are progressive networks and progressive think tanks, A lot of the ideas have been discussed, and um, it takes some time to now match people who can make ideas actionable. I mean, that's the intersection between substance and politics, it's making it actionable so that you can propose the change, find ways to get it approved, and then implement it.
3: And the only thing I would add about the sort of how you make change, it is the ideas and it is the politics, but we cannot ignore the third piece, what I think is the third piece, which is communications. And it's much more than just messaging. But you, you can have a great idea, but if you can't explain it to the American people in ways that, right? And you can have a great idea, but if the politics don't line up. Mm-hmm. So managing those three circles uh, so that you can move and, and, uh, is... is um, Absolutely.
4: <laughs> have a question to your far right.
0: Yes.
3: My name is Helen Garrett, and I'm a proud member and a community leader of Power People Organized for West Side Renewal. We brought 18 people here to Zocalo who weren't able to get in, but I was. I'm standing right (laughs) next to your staff person. All of this wonderful transition information leads me to local politics. You are one of the most important people. To people who are interested in housing that I can think of, and we would like to we would like a meeting with you
2: sure
1: I'd be happy to I, I love power you guys have done great work and be happy okay, to sure absolutely uh, heather Heather repenting is is right here for my staff right behind you she'll arrange it you got it you got it love to do it <laughs> so power is all about and thank you for the work you've done for tenants uh, rights you guys have been uh, amazing I really appreciate it
4: no question here
0: hi my name is Mike um, Looking forward to the coming administration, how do you all feel um, our policies and practices um, regarding humanitarian aid abroad should and will change based on just principle and based on um, how we see the administration coming together so far? Um, Very good, very good question. We've had a discussion (laughs) in Washington for about a year, not a partisan discussion, um, about how – particularly these last years, but also in the post-Cold War period, we have really put the burden entirely on our military men and women. Um, We need a more vigorous diplomacy. We need to have a reinvigorated agency for international development. Um, It was 2005 and the US commander in Afghanistan had created zones of security, and what he said when he came to Washington and he visited the think tanks and he was asking for help. He said, the critical things I need are the tools to build roads and to build schools and to change the way that people see their life and see how they they exist. If you want to move the Taliban out, you've got to give people a vision of what their life should look like. And right now, the military is the default position because... You know, they're there and they're very capable and some of those West Point grads are the most innovative people at helping a tribe figure out how to manage its own affairs. But we've put all the burden on them. Some call it soft power, some call it sustainable security. But um, the future lies in dealing with the causes that cause terrorism and conflict and not the security elements after attacks occur. Now, we have what I'd say in Washington, a violent agreement that we've got to do this change. So now, it's got to become actionable, which means how do we recruit more in the diplomatic corps who will deploy to hot zones? How do we create more capability in AID so that they can work with the NGOs and the other international organizations to solve some of these problems. So in this case, making the solution actionable means state and AID have to get the budget, and then they've gotta create the talent that can go and and do these jobs. It's interesting, there was a poll taken of senior US military officers who said that more tools are critical and I think this is one of the issues why Secretary Gates is staying on. He gave a speech in July where he said America needs, it's a DOD term, non-kinetic tools to, to create the conditions for peace. And so I think he understands it. The men and women who are serving un- understand it. Um, if you Go to that CAP website. We have a whole series of reports on sustainable security. But I think there's consensus, there's agreement, we have to change and move in a different direction. Question to your right, over here.
3: Yes. Hi, I'm Amber
0: Meshack, and um, I identify as a lefty, a progressive, and I think that Barack was very clear that he had to both
4: win and govern from the center. So my question is, how do we, as progressives,
0: or how do we keep progressives from getting disaffected with his, you know, governing from the center and also, you know, but still responsibly push for progressive policy
4: without undermining this great victory?
1: Can I jump in just for, for a quick sec, not as, as moderator? There was an interesting piece that was on Daily Coast today on the, the blog um, that spoke about how um, Rush Limbaugh and others were embracing Hillary Clinton as evidence that Barack Obama was willing to reach out to the right. And the statement of the, no, the, and the statement on Daily Coast was saying it shows you how far left the center has shifted. So even governing from the center, it was an instructive point about where is that center right now too. I uh,
3: couldn't have said it better. I'm glad Marco said it. Um, I, I think that uh, it goes back to that question of sort of connecting and engaging so that you create the political space for movement in a certain direction. Um, the, um, it, it, governing is, well. let me put it this way, I believe uh, President Obama um, understands that you are governing for the entire country. I don't believe, mm-hmm. if it's yeah. fair to say, yeah. that um, the Bush administration understood that or mm-hmm. believed it. Right. And so...
0: Majority of the majority was their phrase.
3: And so, right there gives you some space because there's actually uh, there's a lot of consensus on key issues, on the big on the big stuff, right? We need universal you know healthcare. we, We all these things. We can build the political will. We can fight about the details, and they're very very important. But I think the American people understand the hole we are in. I think there is an acceptance and an understanding that we are in such a deep hole that it's going to take us at least eight years, if not more, to get us not just to where we were before in uh, 2000 end of 2000, but really to, to be ready for the 21st century. We lost eight years of moving this country to the place it needed to be in a global economy with the challenges we're facing. It's like, I feel like we're, we got a chance to start the 21st century again.
0: But from a deeper hole.
3: From a
4: deeper hole, yes, exactly.
2: Much
4: deeper hole. Last question. Got a last question. (laughs) Before I take the last question, I do want to thank the Center for American Progress Action Fund uh, for co-presenting this event and of course the RAND Corporation for hosting this event. Thank you very much.
3: This is a very depressing last question. (laughs) Bush is not finished with this country yet. According to the New York Times, he's gotten uh, a new set of uh, people into uh, EPA Justice Department who were uh, political appointees and now he's making them tenured civil servants. called burrowing in. Right. Uh, What do you suggest... uh, Barack Obama should be doing or can do to get rid of these ideologues?
0: He can undo that. Uh, January 20th afternoon, he can undo that. One of the things, though, that we discussed at at the center is not to overly concentrate on undoing sort of Bush decisions at the 12th hour, meaning focus on your agenda. Focus on the things you need to execute and let the staff Work this out, but the process will allow the Secretary of Interior um, to sort of not turn back the clock, but rather turn the page and can can reevaluate these decisions.
3: Yeah, it, I, there. The President coming in has enough on the plate. There's there's the stuff in the White House. As John has said, all the best thinking is if you really want to make you've got to concentrate and not not get diverted there's plenty of smart people slowly being appointed and then underneath them there will be plenty of work for people to do including identifying people who um, ought not to have been uh, given career status but also figuring out how to move them to some place where they can cause no harm
2: like Um, Afghanistan No. (laughs) 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 we need those foreign service people (laughs) Well, well yeah. You know, anyway, and by the way, we had to deal with that in in the Clinton administration too, and that's it's best dealt with at by the agencies, and you can marginalize people and you know well, figure it out. But it's a shame, but it does happen.
0: So for the Senate. Center for American Progress Action Fund, this has yes. been a great conversation. Have you ever thought about moderating one of
1: those Sunday talk shows? Sure, you know, I always need a backup, so uh, we'll, we'll see what the folks in power want, you know, they might have to get there. But I want to thank you, Rudy. Um, I want to thank you, Maria, and I want to thank you, John. You, you represent the very best of this country, and I mean that you have so served nice. us and you inspire us. And let's give them all a round of applause for the great work they've done. And. They thanked everybody else, but let me thank Zocalo because they create that space of making sure that we know that Los Angeles has intensely local issues, national and international issues. And for those of us that are proud to be Angelinos, we live that seamlessly between all those different levels. And you always incorporate uh, this into the discussions of creating the space for the change we need to see here in Los Angeles as well. So thank you to Zocalo, and thank you all for attending. Have a great evening. Thank you. Thank you.